on chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 7 and 8. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commanded his love towards us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you this day that uh, we have a God who cares, a God who knows, and God who understands, Father God, our every being. And we thank you, Father, that uh, today as we join together in this place and around this city, Father God, and uh, people sit in to uh, listen to your word being administered, Father, we thank you that you are there with us and that you watch over us and you care for us. We pray, Father God, today as we spend some time in your word that you'd be exalted, that you would be lifted up and you would be praised, and that, Father, we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that you minister to our heart's needs this day, Father God, minister to us through your word, challenge us by it, Father, and we pray that we'd be encouraged by it, and we pray that uh, uh, today we would exalt your holy name as we study your word together. Give me wisdom, Father, I pray, that, Lord, I would uh, uh, speak with clarity, that, Lord, you'd help my words to be your words, and that, Lord God, you'd use me, Father, to be a blessing this day as we study your word together. <coughs> Father, we thank you now. Just pray that you go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, we're looking at Romans chapter 5, and we've been looking at the seven benefits of justification listed for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And we've seen so far... Uh, we have peace with God, we have access into the presence of God, we have hope, we have glory in tribulation, and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the first five of these seven benefits. And last week we continued the discussion of the fifth benefit of justification, this matter of the love of God, in verse 6, for when we were, that, uh, when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died from the ungodly. And we're told here why God loved us and what his love has accomplished for us. And that in turn emphasizes to you and I the fact that the reasons for God's love are found in him, in God himself, not in you and I. There's nothing in us that motivated God to love us and die for us. The motivation is all in God. The Lord wants you and I to understand that salvation is all of him. And to understand that it must all be of him because we are powerless and we are ungodly. Now today as we continue to look at this matter of the love of God in verses uh, 7 and 8, we note firstly the remarkable nature of God's love. The remarkable nature of God's love. Look in verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. You know, when we study God's word and we have a look at God and we have a look at the character of God's love, there is no doubt or there can be no doubt that God's love is indeed remarkable. And especially as we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 7, and we read what is written for us here, when you and I consider the fact that scarcely for a righteous man would one die. That is, on rare occasions, it might happen that someone would die for a righteous person, but God says that is scarcely the case. That is hardly the case. It's with great difficulty that someone would die for a righteous man. It's an event 
which cannot be expected to occur very often. And there would be scarcely found an instance in history in which that would be the case. Is basically what this word scarcely means. It is possible, but very, very unlikely that this would happen. You know, and by a righteous man here is meant not a holy man, not someone who is righteous in God, nor is it a man who is righteous because of his obedience to Christ, but it's one who is righteous in his own eyes. The idea of this righteousness is that this person is self-righteous. Well, the Pharisees of Christ, they are an example of that self-righteousness. You know, these were the men who stood on the street corners and would pray out aloud, and you would hear them coming because the bells would ring on their garments, and, you would, uh, and they would pray out loud, praying out to God, and uh, all show, and they would make a big fanfare about it, and they were seen by the populace as being righteous men, and they were self-righteous. The Pharisees were held in much outward esteem by the people of Christ's day, and Uh, venerated among the people of Israel. And yet the reality is it would have been difficult to find anyone in all of Israel who would cheerfully lay down his life for a Pharisee. So scarcely would someone die for a righteous man. That's the imagery here. You have these self-righteous people like the Pharisees but you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in all of Israel who would willingly die for a Pharisee. But you know, and that makes God's love remarkable because of this matter of the fact that scarcely would anyone die, even for a righteous man. But you know, the remarkable thing is that Christ did die for you and I. The remarkable thing is Christ died for you and I, and you and I are sinners, according to verse uh, uh, 6. We were yet without strength, and true time Christ died for the ungodly. There is a second thing about this matter of the remarkable nature of God's love, is that there is no doubt that God's love is remarkable when we consider the rest of verse 7. He goes on and says, Yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. Yet peradventure. The word peradventure here speaks of possibility. So we've gone from the rarity, it is scarcely possible, and probably whatever would happen, that someone would die for a righteous, a self-righteous person, to this word now, possibility, peradventure. And by a good man here is not someone who is made good by the grace of God, but someone who does good works, someone who is a good person, someone of good character. This is a kind of person who demonstrates their goodness by their charitable work. This demonstrates their goodness by being good to other people. They are genuinely good people. And the Lord says that for such a person, perhaps, there might be found someone who was willing to lay down their lives for a good person. And the truth is that throughout history, there have been people who have died for good people. People who are indeed good character, have good uh, behavior, have good actions. People have been willing to die for them. So it's true, sometimes people will die for good people, but not too often. In fact, God says that it's rare, peradventure. But Christ died for us. Not because we were righteous, self-righteous, not because we were good people, 
but because we were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Here is the contrast. You see, he's told us in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5, he's talking about the love of God. He says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Here is the context, the love of God. Then he tells us that for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he wants to explain to us how rare that is, how, how unique that is, how remarkable that is that Christ died for you and I. Because the, the, uh, to, to look at the contrast, people would not die for righteous people. Occasionally people would die for good people. But the very fact that Christ died for you and I, who are ungodly sinners, is remarkable. It's almost unbelievable. But he did it. You see, in and of ourselves, there is nothing worth dying for. And yet God loved us. And that is remarkable. That is the remarkable nature of God's love. Christ did for you and I what no one else could do and what nobody else would do. He died for the ungodly. So he did what nobody else would do. But more than that, Christ did what nobody else could do. Because look secondly at the unprecedented nature of God's love. Not only the remarkable nature of God's love, but the unprecedented nature of God's love. Verse 8. But God commended his love towards us, and while we had sinners, Christ died for us. There's one of those wonderful but gods. This is the glorious contrast. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet per revenge for a good man some would even dare to die, but God. But God. commendeth his love towards us. The word commendeth here means proved it. God proved his love to you and I by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. If you and I have any doubts about God loving us, if you and I have any questions about the, 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 the depth of God's love for us, if you and I have any questions about the fact of the love of God, then just look at what God did for us. He sent his son to die upon the cross of Calvary, and he did that because he loved us. You see, we're left with no doubt about whether God loves us or not. He proved it to us by sending his son to die for us. Isn't that John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso Believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. And what did he do to prove it? He gave his only begotten son. And what makes this sending of his son unprecedented is that Christ died for us, what did it say in verse 8? While we were yet sinners. God commanded his love towards us while we were yet sinners. That means no merit on our side could have moved Christ to die for us. That's the point of verse 7. 
For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So there's the parameters. On what grounds would you die for somebody else? On what grounds would I die for somebody else? That's the question being asked in verse 7. Would you be willing to die for a self-righteous person? Well, probably not. Would you be willing to die for a good person? Well, maybe you would. But would you be willing to die for the ungodly? Not likely. That's the point here. He's building a case. He, he is painting a picture for you and I of, of just a, what's the magnitude of the love of God. What is the unprecedented nature of the love of God? This is an unprecedented fact. People would maybe die for a righteous person. People would possibly die for a good person. But nobody would die for the ungodly, wretched sinners. But God did. God loved you and I so much that he sent his son to die for us even while we were yet sinners. God commanded his love towards us while we were yet sinners. No merit on our side could move Christ to die for us. There was nothing in you and I worth saving. But he died for us. You know, a sinner is the exact opposite of a good man and a righteous man. A sinner is a man who has missed the mark. Someone who has come short of the standard. Romans 3.23, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. We miss them out. We miss the standard. We, we don't match up. In fact, all of our righteousness, the very best you and I can do, all of our righteousness are filthy rags, Isaiah 63 tells us. We have fallen short of God's standard. There is nothing within us even the very best we are is not good enough for God. We are sinners before a holy God. Look in Romans 3.10. A verse we all know well, we've mentioned it many times in Romans. As it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand, there's none that seek of God. They're all gone in the way, they're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That's us. You and I are wretched sinners before a holy God. There is none of us that are righteous. And the very term where it says that Christ died for, the, for sinners, Christ died while we get sinners, this, this term sinners suggests that you and I are totally devoid of any righteousness. This term suggests not moral, ex not moral excellence, but moral failure. You and I are sinners. We have failed miserably before a holy God. See, not only have we not kept the law, we were guilty of trespassing the law. We'd broken God's law. And in James we're told that if we break God's law in one point, we're guilty of it all. You and I stand before, stood before a holy God without Christ as wretched, undone sinners. 
In other words, you and I were guilty of wickedness. And we're guilty in the sight of God, deserving the wrath of God. That's Romans 6.23. For the wage of sin is death. The penalty for sin is eternal damnation, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That is the consequence of our our sin and our wickedness. Yet that's the kind of person that Christ died for. This morally corrupt individual. This individual who is by nature is a sinner and by action is a sinner. This, This rebellious person that you and I were, that's who Christ died for. Not just righteous sinners. Not just good men and lovable men, but for vile and hateful mankind. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And in verse 1, we read a description and following, we read a description of what we were like before we were saved. Ephesians 2.1, And you had the quickened who were dead in trespass and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the last of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's us. And then there's another, but God, in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he's loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. It's a constant theme of the Apostle Paul. He can't get over the fact that as a wretched, vile sinner, Christ died for him, and by grace he is saved. That is the unprecedented nature of the love of God. That Christ died for us while we were ungodly sinners. It's amazing, isn't it, how many like to try and cover up their sin. The reality is, if we acknowledge we're sinners before a holy God, he will save us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. There is no, there is no need for you and I to work. Romans 4 tells us that, but him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is caring for righteousness. We don't have to work to get saved. And you would think, wouldn't you, when, when people hear the gospel, when they hear the message of salvation, that Christ died for sinners, that they would then acknowledge their sin before a holy God and would believe because they would want to have their sins forgiven and have an eternity in heaven. But how many people want to deny the fact that we're sinners? And what's worse, even Christians want to deny that we're sinners. Even to the point of changing the words of some of the most beloved hymns that you and I sing. Take, for instance, Isaac Watts' hymn at the cross. The first verse says this, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? 
Some have questioned the use of the word worm to describe sinners. I said, you know, really, that's, that's a very terrible way to describe what we are. Well, Isaac Watts used those words because in the Psalms, David, when he realized his own sinfulness, says, but I am a worm and no man. So he's, he's quoting the scriptures, he's quoting David's definition of himself, that he's a worm, he's a no man. In fact, if you read Job, you know what Job says about himself? Job says he's a worm. This is the, a description of us, the, the worm, you know, that, that thing that when you and I are digging up the garden, we really don't take much notice to, don't take much care of it. We're thankful it's there because it aerates the garden, but we don't take much notice of it. But some took offense at the fact that the word worm was used in Isaac Watts' hymn. In fact, an editor of the hymn read this and he said, that's not, a very, nice, uh, that's not very nice. People don't like to sing about what worms they are, so let's clean it up a little. Let's say for such a sinner as I. And you can find copies of the, the song at the cross and you'll find it in that phrase, as such a sinner as I, and not such a worm as I. But you know, there are others that have changed it even more. So now if you look up the hymn on the web, or if you look up the hymn in many hymn books, it doesn't even say sinner. It says this, Would he devote his sacred head for such a person as I? Now I don't get it, beloved. I'm a wretched sinner, underhung, hellbound, deserving of all the punishment that was coming my way. But God in his love reached down from heaven's glory, sent his son to die on Calvary. He died, was buried and rose again the third day, and by faith in him I'm saved. And he saved a wretched sinner like me, a worm such as I. No matter how mankind tries to make himself look good. The truth is that we're guilty, we're wretched, we're hell-bound without Christ. Just as God describes us here in verse 8, but God commends his love towards us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God does not love us because we're lovable. God loves us because it's his character to love. It's his nature to love. God is love. He has to love sinners because that's who God is. God loves us unconditionally. No matter how we act. God did something that only God could do when he sent his son to die for us. God did something unprecedented when he loved us. When he loved those of us who don't deserve to be loved, God demonstrated the unprecedented nature of his love. You know, God didn't look at us as sinners and say, okay, you sorry sinners, when you clean up your act, when you get, it, when you get better, when you straighten up, then I'm going to love you. And I'm glad he didn't. Because I'd never achieved that goal. God says, I love you while you are sinners. He loved us first while we were yet 
sinners. God demonstrated he proved his love to us in that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, and that is unprecedented. God's love is remarkable. God's love is unprecedented. And thirdly this morning, look with me to see the substitutionary nature of God's love. The remarkable nature of God's love, the unprecedented nature of God's love, and now the substitutionary nature of God's love. Look at the end of verse 8. Christ died for us. For us. That simply means in our place. It should have been you and me who hung on Calvary. It should have been you and me who died in that place. It should have been you and me who died for our sins, but he died for us in our place. As he hung upon the cross of Calvary, he hung there for you and for me. He hung there in our place on the cross. And what we have here taught in Romans chapter 6 and verse 8 is the substitutionary nature of the love of God. And when Jesus died, he died in my place as my substitute. He died in your place as your substitute. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. As he hung on Calvary, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The reason why God turned his back upon the God the Father turned the back upon God the Son is because God the Son bare in his body's in his body our sin. He became sin for us. As our sinless substitute, the God-man sinless substitute, Jesus satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God when he died on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for you and for me. You know, God demanded from the beginning of time that forgiveness for sins was dependent upon the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There had to be the shedding of blood for there to be remission. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, which we're going to see shortly in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God provided for them uh, animal skins. Animals had to die in order they might be covered when they realized they were naked before a holy God. Blood was shed for their covering. And for our salvation, blood has to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. God had demanded that blood would be shed for sins to be forgiven. It says so in verse 9 of Romans chapter 5. Notice what he says. Much more than being justified by his blood. We should be saved from wrath through him. We're justified by his blood. We're declared righteous by his blood. You see, the fact that Jesus died for you and for me is an amazing statement about the substitutionary, sacrificial love of God. You and I were guilty before God. And in a way, we were guilty, therefore, of the death of Christ. It's our sin that sent Christ to Calvary. It's our wickedness that sent Christ to Calvary. You and I sent him to Calvary. It's because we, what we did, he died. 
It was as if we had a hammer in our hand, pounding those nails into his hands and into his feet. It's as if our hands fashioned the crown of thorns that were put upon his head. It's as if we held the spear that was thrust into his side and into his heart, which brought forth water and blood. You see, you and I are guilty before a holy God. It was our sin that hung him on the cross. But God loves you and I so much that he willingly allowed Jesus Christ to die for our sins as our substitute, and I for one are thankful for that. It's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be declared the righteous of God in him. That is an amazing statement. If anyone deserves to die for their sins, it's me and it's you. But Jesus stood in our place. Look at Romans 3.25. He became our substitute. Look at Romans 3.25. Whom God has set forth, uh, that's what verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth with propitiation, that is the satisfaction through faith in his blood, declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God sent forth his Son to be a propitiation of satisfaction for our sins through faith in his blood. When you and I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary, we are saved because God was satisfied with his death. 1 John 2.2, 2, and he is the propitiation, he's the satisfaction for our sins. And not as only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. He's the satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice for you and I on the cross of Calvary. You know, in many churches today, you won't hear much about the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus Christ. In fact, today around the world, there are entire denominations that have gone through the hymn book and removed every song about the blood of Jesus. Because they think it's old-fashioned, they think it's gory, they think it's gross, and they think it's ugly. And so they've removed the references of the blood. But the truth is, beloved, that they cannot have sins forgiven Without the shedding of blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. If you remove the blood, you remove salvation. If you remove the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, you remove the means by which we're saved. I do not understand why Christians won't want to rewrite Scripture. Why would you want to say that we're not sinners, and we're not worms, it's just that he died for me? Why would you want to say that he did not die a substitutionary sacrificial death upon Calvary and shed his blood for you and I when he did? The glorious truth is that Jesus was our substitute. He died in our place. Spurgeon said this, 
Christ died for the hopeless. He is the hope of the hopeless. He's the savior not of those partly lost, but those wholly lost. Don't you love that? He's not the savior of those partly lost, but those who are wholly lost. That's you and me. Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, if Christ died for the ungodly, this fact leaves the ungodly no excuse. If they do not come to him and believe in him unto salvation, had it been otherwise, they might have pleaded, we're not fit to come. But you are ungodly, and Christ died for the ungodly. Why not for you? He died for you. It's true, if, if any other definition had been given as to why Christ died, you and I could question that we don't belong in that category. But the fact he died for the ungodly means there's nobody who fits outside that category. Everybody's ungodly. To varying degrees, maybe, to, uh, in the mind of man, from you know, the, the righteous sinner, the good man, right through to the wretched sinner, the, the murderer and other crimes, but God says, I've died for Christ died for all the ungodly. Whatever end of the spectrum you fit on, whether you're the good man, righteous man, or the unworthy un, un sinner, we all fit into the phrase ungodly. Christ died for all. He died for you and he died for me. And if you're not saved today, won't you trust him today? He died for you. He died for you. He shed his precious blood upon the cross of Calvary for you. This is, the, this is the nature of God's love for you and me. And we can praise God today for the remarkable, unprecedented, substitutionary love of God. Remember what Isaac Watts said? Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We're worms. But despite that, God sent his son to die for us. Praise God, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only when we were that not only when we were without strength, but while we were sinners, while we were vile, condemned, and under the wrath of God, Christ died for us. Let me consider the remarkable, unprecedented substitutionary nature of God's love, there is only one thing we can say. And I think Isaac Watts sums it up well in his hymn at the cross. Not only where he talks about being worms, he says this in response to that statement, that would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I, he says this, but drops of grief I ne'er can repay. The debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior today, then that's all that we can do. All you and I can do is stand and marvel at the love of God and give ourselves away unto Him for His glory. But if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, your Savior today, Consider this, Christ died for you. Won't you trust him today? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word, 
Father, we thank you for these two very familiar verses. Father, most of us who are saved could quote these verses, at the very least quote verse 8, without much hesitation. Father, I'm so thankful that in these two verses are two of the most glorious verses of truth with regard to your love. That your love is so remarkable, Father, that in contrast to dying for a righteous man, dying for a good man, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Father God, for the unprecedented nature of that love, that you would die for sinners such as us. And for the substitutionary nature of that love, that you would sacrifice, your son would die the sacrificial death upon Calvary, and shed his blood so that we could be saved. He died in our place. Lord, if anybody today watching is not saved, stir their hearts. Convict them, Father God, of the knowledge of the love of God, that God loves them as sinners and wants to save them, and that they today would bow before you and trust you as their Savior before it's too late. And for those of us who are saved, may we with Isaac Watts respond that there is nothing that we can do in respect to the love of God except give ourselves to you daily for your glory. Commend your word to our hearts today. Bless we pray in Jesus' name.